78 years ago on this date, December 8th, 1941, um, Americans tuned in and they heard our president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, address the nation. To say that fear gripped our nation would probably be an understatement. There was uncertainty. Uh, People were wondering what would happen next because the day before, uh, Pearl Harbor had been attacked by the Empire of Japan. December 8th, 1941, to eager listening ears, uh, our president delivered those now famous words. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in what? Infamy. He went on to account the, uh, recount the attacks from the previous day. Uh, suicide bombers, planes, devastating loss, and they were still trying to find the number of men and women that had died in those attacks. Can you imagine, and some of you can, if you're over the age of 78, probably between the ages of 85 and 90 or older, you can remember something about what was happening on December 8th, 1941, what your family was feeling. We all, I think, in our generations have those days that we can remember what it was like for me. I remember September 11th pretty vividly. Um, I remember the Challenger space shuttle exploding as we were all gathered in our rooms watching this incredible mission to space. And then suddenly the, the teachers turning off the television and calling us to prayer. And I'm sure for those of you that were alive in 1941, there's a similar feeling that surrounds that time. Can, can you imagine someone coming to you on December 8th, 1941 and saying, you know what? This is a really bad day. But guess what? In about 70 years, like Japan's going to be a great friend of our country. We're going to be allies. We're going to be partners. We're going to do business together. Like, like you're going to buy their televisions and you're going to love them. I think people would have scoffed at you. They would have thought you were crazy and probably unpatriotic. Japan a friend. Uh, I traveled to China when I was in college and participated in teaching English kind of as a way to reach people for Christ. And we took a tour of a museum that chronicled the Japanese abuses of the Chinese during the same time when Japan had attacked the United States. I can tell you that for the Chinese, many of them, uh, they don't have very good feelings towards the Japanese still. And if you saw what I saw and it happened to your family, you might feel the same way. And so imagine someone saying to you, uh, Japan's going to be an ally. But that's what they are now. Like They're one of our most strategic partners 78 years later. What does it take to move someone from being an enemy, uh, from being someone who's absolutely opposed to you and against you and hurting you to now being a friend, being an ally. On a less serious note, just just imagine with me for a moment. Any Colts fans in the room? 
Um, maybe you've seen that Tom Brady's house is for sale. He can get out of his contract next year. Uh, imagine Tom Brady coming and quarterbacking for your Indianapolis Colts in 2020. Like, it's hard to imagine, right? What does it take to move someone from enemy to ally? What would that look like for you? Let's not play games. We all have enemies, right? Now, your enemies may not be as egregious as the Japanese at Pearl Harbor Day, but, but we all have enemies. We all have experienced someone who's opposed to us, haven't we? They're all, we all have family members or coworkers or neighbors or somebody that just decided that, that they don't like you, and they're going to make your life miserable. Um, and it hurts a lot. Uh, for some of you, that person's someone on Facebook that just likes to troll your posts and zing you every once in a while. For, for some of you, it's, 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 it's anonymous notes you get in your mailbox. For, for others of you, it's emails. It's, it's people who are just, they don't like you. They don't like something you believe. Uh, your expectations of them are too high. They don't like how you parent. They don't like what you do with your grandkids. Like, I mean, you, you name it. There's a whole number of reasons why people are opposed to us. But we, we all have enemies. What would it take for one of those enemies to become your ally, to become a friend, to view them differently? Here are a couple of things it would take. Now, let's just assume for a moment you're right, because it's always easier to start there, right? So your opinion is right. Your political stance is right. What you do with your children is right. How you live your life is right. And so they're opposed to you because they're wrong. Let's give you the benefit of the doubt. You're right. They're wrong. What's it going to take for them to move from enemy to ally? Well, they're obviously going to have to have that moment where they better understand where you're coming from, where they better understand you. Something's going to have to change the way they view you, how they uh, respond to your perspective or your opinion. They have to kind of have this awakening moment. That's what has to happen for them. But even still, that's not enough. If your enemy is going to move to ally, not only do they have to kind of come to see and understand what you believe and what you think and what you feel and who you are, but you've got to be willing to extend grace. Because let's be honest, if there's been opposition, probably the longer that period of opposition, the more hurt things have been said, the more hard things that have happened. And so for you to allow that person back, even they're going to say, you know what? I was wrong. You're right. You're doing a great job. For you to be like, okay, there's a lot we got to work through here. There's got to be Grace. What does it take to move from enemy to ally? What does it take to move from an enemy, someone who's absolutely opposed to Jesus, to God and all that he's revealed and done in him? What does it take for someone to move from someone who's opposed to God and his ways and his truth and his life as revealed and lived out in Jesus to move from that to being a friend of God and an ally with God? We understand that, I hope we understand that opposition towards the purposes of God has been around for a very, very, very long time. Like we're talking beginning of human history time. Genesis recounts for us kind of how creation came to be and God saw things formless and void and he spoke into the darkness and he gave light and he, he, he formed things with purpose and he brought his rule and his reign and his truth to the world. That's Genesis 1, Genesis 2. He creates mankind in his image. He's, people are living in harmony. The created with the creator. The created with the created. Like it's not just God and human, humankind and, and animals and plants are in harmony. But it's like 
people are in harmony. Like Adam and Eve are getting along. I mean, they're hanging out in the garden. They're naked. They're having a good time. Things are great. And then we see chapter 3. And Eve is near a tree that they've been told they can't eat from. And the enemy, serpent, Satan, which means adversary, by the way, opposer of God, comes and speaks to Eve and says, did God really say? What is that? That's, that's opposition. It's someone against what God stands for. And Adam and Eve believe the lie. They're deceived. And in that moment, they're opposed to God. And there's a divide between humanity and the creator. And then what follows is a history of God's incredible great purposes. And yet the enemy as this opposer, this accuser, this adversary, deceiving people to stand against what God believes and has instituted as best. You know, we don't like to think of it this way, but uh, all of us really are susceptible to those deceptive schemes. And really one of the best things we can do is admit that none of us are beyond uh, the possibility of succumbing to one of the enemy's deceptive lies. Because that keeps us honest in pursuing Christ. And when we do give in to the deception, we, we're living in opposition to God's best. And we don't like to think of it that way. We don't like to think of the fact that, that we're deceived by the enemy and, and we're opposing God in those moments because that's the enemy opposing God. But that's, that's in fact what Paul tells us. And when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us very explicitly, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the principalities, the spiritual powers of darkness and the unseen places. Ultimately, this is a spiritual battle against an enemy. That's really important to remember. Here's a freebie, by the way. When you are at odds with another human being, you would be wise to remember that your battle ultimately is not against that person that you sit across the table from. Your battle is not against the person with whatever color of skin they have. Your battle is not against their cells and their fibers and their being and their brain. Your battle is against the enemy. Because when someone treats us wrongly, when someone pursues ways outside of Christ, it's evidence of the enemy's influence, a place that God doesn't yet have control. And we do ourselves a huge favor when we're in conflict with someone to remember, wait a second, this battle ultimately is not against that person whose heart beats just like mine. My battle is against the one who has, still has control over that part of their heart. And so let's, let's go to fight in the prayer realm for that spiritual battle before we fight with the person in the physical realm. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But opposition, because of that, exists. Opposition to the way of Christ exists. I was having a conversation with my mother at Thanksgiving and she was telling us about their church, and for the last several years, their church has chosen one day during uh, a certain week, maybe this week coming up, where um, they, they provide a live nativity in the center of their town in southern Indiana. And this year, they're doing it, but there's all this uproar because it may be their last, because there's a woman that lives in the same town who's filed a lawsuit saying that a living nativity in their town is unlawful. So even as we get on the jolly train... Uh, there, there are still people who don't like 
Christ and they don't like Christmas. There's, there's still opposition. It, it continues. That brings us to what I hope to share today is that we are looking at this series, Come to Jesus. And our hope for this series is that you and everyone like you who will listen, who you will share the hope of Christ with this Advent season, that they will come to see the depths of who Jesus is, the significance, that this is not a baby we obsess over. It's not someone to be left in a manger, but it's someone that should influence our lives. We want you to see the depths of who Jesus is. We've shared that kind of this umbrella point for the entire teaching series is that Jesus came for us that we might come to him. Jesus came to help draw mankind back to the creator that made them. He came for us that we might come to him. He came for you that you might come to him. Another way to say it is that he came for all, that all might come to him. Jesus' goal in coming was to rescue humanity from sin. And there's hope in that. There's hope for you if you're already a follower of Jesus. To be reminded that this one who's coming we celebrate has restored things between you and the God that made you. There's hope for, for those of you that maybe have turned away from him and yet the Advent season provides you this opportunity to, to refocus and to reclaim the pursuit and the purpose in your life. But that hope is also there for even those who right now consider themselves enemies of God, who are opposed to the things of God, who are opposed to Jesus. He came for the opposer. He came for the enemy just as much as he came for you that we all might come back to him. I don't know all the reasons why people are opposed to Jesus. Uh, I'm going to be honest, and here's my disclaimer. Uh, from about three days after my birth, I have spent uh, time among God's people. From, from like day three of my life, I was sitting in a church with some preacher telling me about Jesus. Now, could I discern all that at like day three? No. But what I want to share with you is that from that all the way up through the last uh, 41 years of my life, I have been immersed in the reality, of, or in my opinion, the reality of who God is and that he exists and that he loves me and he has a purpose for my life and that Jesus died to make things right between me and the God that made me and to make me whole. So I don't know a time in my life when, when I didn't believe, not just through the things that were taught me, but through the things that I saw in the world that God was real. But I know that for the vast majority of you in this room and, and those that are listening or watching right now on, on Facebook Live, that, that that's not your story. And I know there are a whole host of reasons why you choose not to believe in Jesus, if that's you. There's a whole host of reasons why you're opposed to him. And I'm not even going to pretend to understand all of those reasons. I'm not even going to pretend to think that I can mine all those reasons in like 30 minutes together on a Sunday morning. But what I hope to do is show you through the life of another who was once opposed to Jesus what might be some reasons you resonate with. So here's my hope. If you are someone in the room or someone listening, watching, who's not a follower of Jesus and you're opposed to that, you're here because someone brought you, because someone tricked you. I've heard stories of that recently. Like someone's like, hey, come hang out with me Sunday morning. Oh, wait, where are we? This isn't Starbucks. Oh, you're here now. Come get a cup of coffee and sit down. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here just because you're making mama happy, you're making daddy happy, and you're waiting for your free ticket out of here. Maybe it's your ticket to lunch today. Um, if you're here and you're opposed, will you just contemplate that there's a, 
there's maybe a reason why millions gather around the world to worship this one we call Jesus. Will you just ask yourself, why is that? Would you just open yourself to understanding at the very least why this one we'll talk about named Paul in a minute was so opposed and what changed him? Just contemplate. That's all I'm asking you to do. If you're already a follower of Jesus, here's what I'm asking of you. Would you choose to see someone who lives opposed to Jesus and his life, not as an enemy that you have to push away, but as someone who you can pray for? Like we're giving this challenge to pray and fast on Mondays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Would you spend your time tomorrow praying for, for the people in your life that, that are against following Jesus right now. I want you to have a heart for them. I want you to see them not as, not as this enemy, but as someone who's waiting to experience the truth and just pray sincerely for them that God would grab hold of their heart. Uh, years ago, I got annoyed with this term in the church. And if you've been around me long enough, you know that I'm a bit of a rebel. And so I, I, I would apologize for that. But at this point, 41 years in, I just, that's who I am, right? I try not to be too mean about it. Um, but I got tired of people standing up in churches and talking about non-believers. Um, I, I didn't like that word. And so I started using a term years ago, pre-believing people. And what does it do? It helps me see people differently because that person is not a non that is against me but it's a person who's not yet seen the light and the glory and the goodness of the God that made them. And so would you pray for some pre-believing people this week? We're going to look at the story of Paul. Now, chances are, if you are not very familiar with the church, um, that you have heard of Paul before. Uh, one of the primary reasons is because one of the favorite names we like to slap on hospitals and, and churches and schools. We have St. Paul's this and St. Paul's that. And the reason for that is because Paul, maybe you already knew this, wrote a good portion of our New Testament. But even beyond that, he was one of Jesus' contemporaries, meaning he lived during the same time as Jesus. And he traveled the world telling other people about Jesus. And Quite honestly, if you're in the room and you believe in Jesus, whether you realize it or not, you'd likely believe in him because of Paul. In fact, I won't say you likely believe in him because of Paul. You do believe in him because of Paul, because, because of Paul's work taking the gospel out to the entire Roman world that now it influences the European culture, that then influences people when they settle in America, and we get to know who Jesus is, right? Paul gets credit for that. But what you may not know is that before Paul was Paul, and this Paul we talk about, and this Paul we read, Paul was a man named Saul. His name was changed later in his life. And when we meet up with Saul for the first time in the scriptures that reveal, you know, God's purposes and so much of history, uh, we, we, we meet this man named Saul, Acts chapter 7. Luke's telling the story of the early church. And he shares about this man named Stephen first. And, and Stephen was a follower of Jesus. And Stephen was courageous. And Stephen was bold. And, and, and there were people that weren't so sure what to do with Jesus. Some Jewish people were still pretty upset with Jesus. And, and, and Stephen gets the opportunity. He starts telling people who this Jesus is and how he connects with every significant moment in Israel's history. And it infuriates the Jews. And they decide they're going to kill this man who's this courageous follower of Jesus. And so they decide to take up all these stones. And, and we first learn a Saul because at the end of chapter 7 in Acts, he's standing by as people lay their coats at his feet. Saul is running a coat check for an angry mob. 
But what's more significant is what follows, if you read a couple of verses down, is that Saul gave his approval. He's not just running coat check to make a few quarters. He wants Stephen to die. Because in his mind, Stephen has committed blasphemy. He has spoken a false truth, an unholy thing about God, that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of his people's expectations. That's when you first meet Saul. That should tell you enough. He's a pretty bad dude. Luke tells us more about Saul. Acts chapter 9. Uh, Stephen's dead. He, he gets taken into heaven as he's, he's being stoned. Um, and then in Acts chapter 8, we see his Ethiopian eunuch come to know Christ um, through uh, Philip's testimony. And then we get to Acts chapter 9, and Luke picks up the story about Saul. And he talks about this man who's breathing out murderous threats against God's people. Saul would later become Paul, and that story is told three times in Acts. Luke tells it in Acts chapter 9 just for biographical information. Here's this guy. He's pretty significant. He ends up being a part of this great Jesus movement, but he was a really bad dude. And then he tells it because he's reporting what Paul said. In Acts chapter 22, Paul speaks his story to a group of eager Jewish listeners. And in Acts chapter 26, Paul tells his story again to some governing officials. I want us to dial in on that final time when Paul shares his story in Acts chapter 26 this morning. And I'm going to tell you why, but I'm going to make you wait in anticipation. There's a specific reason why I want to use Acts 26, but I'm not going to tell you till the end. So that's me being mean. Um, don't open till December 8th at uh, 11.44. Um, so what's happening in Acts chapter 26? Paul, who has now gone throughout the entire Roman world over the last several years telling people about Jesus, has in the process upset a lot of people. Uh, he is a former Jew, uh, and now he's believing in Jesus, and he's using his voice to champion Jesus, even in Jewish circles. And so what's happening is that he shows up at these synagogues. There are these Jewish believers. He tells them about Jesus. It's like, oh, no way. And they start following Jesus and become these Jewish Christians. And that upsets the Jewish leaders. And so they do what they try to do to Jesus. They want to get rid of him. So they want to have him arrested. And so he's in Jerusalem, even though friends of his said, don't go there. They're going to get you. He goes, he proclaims Christ. He's arrested. He sits before the governor of Judea, Felix. Felix can't figure out why the people want to put him away. And so he just kind of leaves him sitting there. And we actually learned through Luke that Felix was hoping for a bribe. It shows you a little bit about Felix's character. He's this corrupt guy. He wants a little bit of money. If, if Paul would just kind of pass him a few bucks under the table, he'd let Paul out. But Paul's like, no, that's not what I stand for. So Felix's time as governor ends. Festus takes over as governor. And he wants to do something favorable for the Jews. So he brings this guy, Paul, on trial. But he's like, I can't figure out why they want to get rid of this guy. So he just kind of leaves him in Caesarea for a while. While he's in Caesarea, a man named Herod Agrippa, who has a little bit of influence in parts of Judea, comes to visit and pay his respects to the new Roman governor over the area. And while he's there, Festus says, you know what, Agrippa, you know a lot about Jewish culture. Why don't you hear what they're saying about this guy named Paul? Why don't you let him just kind of tell you what's going on? And so Paul's called to give a defense, an official apology, with all the great skills of Aristotle and Plato before Herod Agrippa II. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 26. So Paul is speaking to Agrippa. Festus is kind of a, um, in the background. Agrippa's sister Bernice is there. Probably some of these Jewish leaders are present. And listen to what Paul says about his life 
pre-Paul, when he was Saul. Listen to how opposed he was to the way of Jesus. Verse 9. I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, at one point in my life, I was convinced, I was certain, I had no doubts that I should do everything I possibly can to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, there was a point in my life when every ounce of energy, every bit of my mental focus, every plot, every plan, every day was committed to opposing the name of Jesus. And that's a pretty big statement because the name of Jesus speaks about his reputation. It speaks about everything related to Jesus. And Paul says, I was bent on eradicating any thought, any feeling, any, any hint, any smell, any taste of Jesus. Does that, that tell you a little bit about him being an enemy of God? Verse 10, he goes on to explain to Agrippa, and that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And here's this man who will tell us in a few, in, in a few moments, or he actually told us in a few moments prior, like verse 4 and 5, that he was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. And he's telling us braggadociously that at one point in his life, he put his stamp on the killing of people who followed Jesus. Now, is this multiple people who died? We don't know. We know at least it was Stephen. But that, he's a bad guy. Verse 11, he's an enemy of Christ. Many a time I went from one synagogue, one place of Jewish worship to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme, to speak something unholy and not right about God, a false lie. I guess a falsity, a lie that's near me. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Like he was manic about getting rid of people who followed Jesus. Does that give you this idea? He was opposed to the way of Jesus. Like his whole life was bent on helping people see that, that there's no way Jesus was who he said he was. Don't even think about him. Get rid of him. And if you're going you're gonna to stick with him, then you're going to die for it. I would submit to you that there are still people who dedicate their lives to opposing the way of Jesus. Now, often when we think in these violent terms, we probably need to think of those governments that are absolutely opposed to Jesus or some of the more militant religious movements in our world. But in a less violent sense, you and I both know through things you read, through things you watch, maybe even through people you know, that there are people who are still absolutely opposed. And they've kind of found this side mission in their life to, to try to push people as far as they can away from this idea of Jesus and the life that that he stands for. Why? Why are people so opposed to Jesus? Again, I cannot go through every reason, but I want to look into Paul's life because there are just three reasons, and I'm sure there are more why Paul was opposed to Jesus, but just three things that creep up that I think you might resonate with if you're opposed to Jesus. These three things are these. Pride, authority, and the cost. I think what kept Paul initially from moving towards Jesus were pride, authority, and cost. And here's why pride. What's pride? This uh, inflated sense of self that you know what's right. You have all the answers. Um, other people are beneath you. It's this 
it's not really a right understanding of yourself. That's humility, but it's this um, not right understanding of yourself. Like you think you're better than you are. Paul had grown up as a Pharisee. Many historians think that his dad, at least, maybe his dad and his grandfather were Pharisees. He has been indoctrinated from a very young age that this Pharisee sect, he calls it a strict sect early up in in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 26, was the way to follow God. He says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 14 that that he followed all the teachings of his fathers, like, like all the best rabbis, all the best teachers, like he was on board with what they taught. He tells us that as far as Judaism is concerned, that he was well advanced. Like he was, he was smarter than everybody else. The Pharisees kind of had this idea that they had the answers. That if someone wanted to follow God, they should come to them and, and, and they would tell them what God wants. So what, did, what did Moses mean by that? Well, I'll tell you what Moses meant by that. What did Moses mean by that? I'll tell you what Moses meant. What, what did the prophet mean when he said this? Well, I'll tell you what he meant. It's why when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, why that was so controversial because he was saying, I know you've been taught this, but they were wrong. So if Paul, who's grown up hearing that he's right and he has all the answers, were to accept Jesus as real, it would have meant that he was wrong. And that's hard. I can't speak for women in the room. I can speak for men and almost every man I know. It is hard for us to admit when we're wrong, isn't it? Like, we'll stumble through our apologies. We'll kind of backdoor into them. It's just hard. We, we want to be right, you know? And I don't think Paul was any different. He dedicated his life to this. And he had all these understandings of when the Messiah comes, he'll look like this, he'll act like this, he'll stand for this. And, and quite honestly, he probably did what a lot of us do. He's kind of imagined God in his own image. He'll act a lot like me. And when Jesus didn't, hmm, was Paul going to be right or was Jesus going to be right? And that relates to the next, and that's authority. See, as a Pharisee, he was one who carried authority. He, he, he carried power. When Pharisees would stand in places while people might have a little bit of fear, while they, they might uh, wonder about their strict code, oftentimes people said, you know what, that's, that's someone you should listen to. They had this inherent power. But if Jesus was real, if the things he said were real, then suddenly he wouldn't have power anymore. He wouldn't be the one with all the answers. Jesus would be. What about cost? Well, again, related to pride and authority, if you have to turn from everything you've known, everything you've been taught, everything you've believed, that's going to mean a change in relationships For Paul, it would mean a change in how he spent his life as a Pharisee. That's a huge cost. And so for anyone who's believed certain things and lived in a certain way and thought they were right, like to overcome the pride and the authority and the cost, that's that's hard. And I think that as I look out on the world, that's one of the primary reasons others are opposed to him. It comes down to pride and authority and cost. And, and if you're opposed to him and it's not for any of those reasons, um, I can't speak to the others, but, but, but I'd love you, for you to come have a conversation. I'd like to know what more of those are. Pride still affects us. 
Because if, if I've been taught by my grandma or my grandpa or a really close friend or a teacher that I highly respect, a professor, that this is how life is, and, and, and the way of Jesus or the way of God or the words of Scripture speak against them, then I have to admit that, you know what? I don't have all the answers. And that's hard. It's hard to overcome that pride. I don't want to be told that I'm wrong. You don't want to be told you're wrong. You don't want to be told that you've built your life on something and you've missed the point. That's just hard for anybody to hear. I think that's why some remain opposed to Jesus. Some remain opposed to Jesus because of the authority issue. And I'm just going to come out and, and tell you kind of where I stand. I think this is the biggest issue why people are opposed to Jesus is the authority. It's not just for those opposed to Jesus. It's for followers of Jesus too. We struggle with someone else telling us what to do. We like to make all kinds of jokes about teenagers having authority issues. But if we just look in the mirror, I think uh, each of us has authority issues. I would even tell you that there's this thread of submission that runs throughout the scriptures that's really hard for us to grab hold of. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why would Paul tell that to the people in Ephesus? Man, because it's hard. And then what does he give us for case studies after that? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, this is how you submit to your wife in love. This is kids, how you, how you submit to your parents. This is, this is how slaves you submit to your masters. This is how we submit to each other. That's hard stuff. Well, what about Peter who writes about submitting to our elders, those who have authority in the church? That's hard stuff. Submitting to someone else's authority is just hard. And I think for many followers of Jesus and even those who would say they're opposed to Jesus to think that God has inspired these words through scripture and they're timeless and they're relevant and they proclaim truths and realities that sometimes our culture doesn't agree with, that sometimes I don't agree with, that sometimes I struggle with, that's hard. To say, you know what, I don't like it, I don't like the way it feels, I don't like the way it sounds, but I'm going to follow that, that's hard. I think that's why some people remain opposed to Jesus because to allow him to be king, oh man, that's a hard word, right? Like he's going to oversee me? Like, like he's going to be my Lord? I'm going to be his servant? It means he gets to tell me what to do? Yeah, that's hard. And the last one is the cost because when you add up, maybe telling someone I love that they were wrong about what they taught me or choosing to submit to God's authority in ways that are difficult, that comes at a cost. It means that relationships change sometimes. It means that careers change sometimes. It means that what I see as a good time changes sometimes. And that's hard. So how did Paul make it through all that? Well, I want to take you back to the beginning. I asked the question, what does it take to move someone from an enemy to an ally. And again, assuming that you are right, it means the person who is opposed to you has to come to see you or the issue or the circumstance in a whole new way. And then you've got to extend grace. Paul describes in verses 12 through 18 how he came to see Jesus in a whole new way and how he experienced the grace of God. And I want you to hear it from his lips. Imagine Paul Standing in this place of influence, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, a host of other people, attendants to these powerful leaders, um, possibly some of the same Jewish accusers are present. But Paul just looks at Agrippa and he says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus 
with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions, and we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice. It said to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? It's the moment everything changed. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up. Stand on your feet. You can feel grace in this moment. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He has that moment. He sees God, the glory of heaven, the glory of God's throne room. It opens up and they're blinded by the light and he sees Jesus for who he is. He hears Jesus declare who he is. I I would submit to you that if you are opposed to Jesus, that one of the most honest but difficult questions you can ask is the question Paul asks in verse 15. Who are you, Lord? If he really is this big of a deal that people gather around the world and worship him in many places at great cost, then isn't it worth at least asking that question honestly and pursuing an answer? And as your search leads you to the stories of the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, and as your research drives you into libraries, into volumes of works about Jesus, I'm going to bet on his spirit, God's spirit, that you're going to see Jesus in a whole new way. And when you do, you will wonder what Paul wondered. Oh, man, I can't resist this any longer. I love that question, that statement that, that, that Jesus makes. He says, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That just sounds like some weird thing, Right? But here's here's what a goat is. A goat is a stick with spikes on it. It's used by a farmer to goad along, prod along a a livestock that is kind of rebelling. It's like, you know, two uh, ox are are putting a yoke together and they just kind of look at each other and like, you know what, I ain't moving today. I'm moving today either. And they start chewing their cud and the the farmer comes along and he's like, no, you're going to move. He starts goading them. He hits them with this spiky stick. Eventually they're going to say, you know what, this isn't very comfortable We could stay here all day. We're going to get sore. We're going to have to move eventually, so let's get on with it. It was was an idea used by the Greeks to say, when you resist the will of the gods, again, they believed in that false pantheon of, of deities. When you resist the will of the gods, it's futile. And so Jesus uses that statement to say, Paul, are you going to keep resisting? It's futile. Paul has that moment. You know what? Everything that I've resisted... Everything that I've stood against, it's futile to keep standing against it. So he changes, and then Jesus gives all this grace. This one who was persecuting, this one who was hurting, this one who was harming, now gets to use his voice and his energy and his persistence to help the world know who Jesus is. 
in the process, Paul makes a few exchanges. He exchanges pride for humility. I don't have all the answers, but, but you do, Lord, and teach me. He exchanges authority for submission. You know what? I don't have to be the boss. Why don't you tell me what to do? Why don't you send me where to go? And we see all these instances in the book of Acts of the Spirit leading Paul. Wait, don't go here. No, wait, go here. And he submits to the authority of God's Spirit. And then we see Paul in letter after letter not emphasize what he has lost. Did he lose friendships within that guild of Pharisees? Yes. Did, did, did he lose probably, uh, you know, wealth? The Pharisees were known for taking a lot of money from people. Yes. But he emphasizes what he gained. Even those things that hurt him like floggings and, and stonings. He says, I count these all as rubbish because of the surpassing greatness of Christ. Like, like there's gain in it for him. And he, he said no to these friendships, but he gained Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and, and Lydia and Barnabas and, and Timothy. He, he gained these, these people, he, he, like Silas, who he hung out in a prison and sang songs with. Like he, he, he lost out on this, this ravaging discontentment that led him to persecute people in the, the farthest regions around Jerusalem. But what did he gain? He gained contentment. Philippians chapter 4. I've learned the secret of being content, Paul says. It wasn't about what he lost, it's what he had gained. And so as he exchanges pride for humility and authority for submission, he gains so much. And here's my challenge to you, that if you would ask that question, who are you, Lord? And allow Jesus to break that pride, to allow him to teach your heart, to submit to his ways, you will find yourself gaining far more than you lose in this life. So what's next for you? If you're opposed to him, I'm not asking you to have your come to Jesus moment right now. I don't doubt that his spirit can't do that. But I'm asking you just to honestly say, Lord, who are you? If he is prodding you, I'd encourage you to come forward when we sing our closing song after that. And we're happy to help you on that journey. If you were someone who was opposed to Jesus and now you follow him, my encouragement to you is to use your story to help other people like you. Here's the secret. Here's why I chose Acts chapter 26. Because here is one who was once opposed to God, Paul, who's speaking to an entire audience of people that are opposed to God. Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, the Jews that have lobbied these accusations against him. Here's the one who once opposed, who's come to be an ally of Jesus, sharing with a bunch of people who are now enemies of Jesus, how they can follow him. Who else has a more powerful witness than the one who's been there? So use your story. If you were once opposed, if you once said, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I don't believe in this Jesus, and now you follow him, share that with somebody. I I love these words of Paul, Acts chapter 26, verses 28 and 29. So he shares all this stuff about what Jesus has done and how God uses him as a light to the Gentiles and Agrippa has sat as his captive audience and Paul stops and, and here's what Agrippa says. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He's like, Paul, are you, are you giving me an altar call? Like, like is this the time you're going to, I'm going to follow you just after hearing what you've said? And Paul says, listen, Agrippa, short time, long time, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. He says, I'm telling you this story. I don't care if you want to convert right now. That'd be incredible. But you know what? If it takes you a long time, so be it. Because my prayer is that not only you, 
But everyone listening, Festus, Bernice, these Jewish accusers, that they would come to experience this incredible hope of God that I have. Eh, Except for these chains that I'm wearing. I hope you don't have to go through that. May you use your journey to help somebody else. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, may you use your prayers. May you pray. Would you, would you pray a prayer like that for the people in your life who are opposed? Short term or long time. God, use me that other people might experience you. Yeah, you can leave out all the hard stuff I've been through, but help them experience you. I hope that this Advent season, you see that Jesus came for you that you might come to him, even if you or someone you love is opposed to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the conviction and the work of your incredible spirit. I ask God that you would draw men and women into your life or deeper into your life, that we would cast aside pride and embrace humility God, you would teach us how to not want for our own power, but to rely upon yours and to submit to your authority. Father, help us to train our eyes to see the gain that is found in following you and not to focus only on the hardship. God, draw us into you. In your name we pray and sing the name of Jesus. Amen.